And uh, we don't normally do this at Faith Assembly. Maybe it's a good habit to get into. I've tried it before. We'll try it again today. If you would, please stand with me today for the reading of God's Word. It's aerobics time. Sit down. Stand up. Sit, right? No, this is the last time I'm asking you to stand. We're going to begin reading in verse 17. For those of you who have heard me preach over the last few years, you know this is a a story in the Gospels that I reference often. This is one of my most uh, favorite Jesus stories in the Gospels. And so we're going to read it today beginning in verse 17. And he was setting out on a journey, and as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he, and he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. This is, the, this is the word of God. This isn't the word of Jeff. This isn't the word of faith assembly. That's the word of God. You may be seated this morning. I said this is one of my favorite texts because this, there's a little bit of all of us in this story. Many of you have heard me say over the years, when it comes to scripture, we're not the hero. We are the villain or we are the damsel in distress at best. And in this story, we see very much a part of ourselves in this rich young ruler. There's one thing I hope you take away from this. I hope as the, as the scripture unfolds, I hope this becomes very clear to you today. Everyone must decide how much they want to follow Jesus. I'll say it again. Everyone must decide how much they want to follow Jesus. In church, it's not on the slide, but Jesus is an all or nothing person to follow. You cannot do it halfway. You can know Jesus. You can know about Jesus. And this young man did. And the other gospels tell us he was rich. Mark's going to tell us he was very wealthy. He owned much property. Matthew and Luke are going to also kind of shape our our view of this young man. He was a ruler. That's why the, the sermon title is The Rich Young Ruler. He was likely a ruler in the synagogue, and he was young. And he knew about Jesus enough to come running to him, but there was never a relationship established. There are a lot of people who know a lot about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus to the point it has changed them from the inside out. Many people, I'm quoting a a much better preacher than myself here, he said, many people will miss heaven by 18 inches, the distance from their head to their heart. They know who Jesus is. They know about him. They know what the Bible even might say about him. They might know the historical versions of him that the extra biblical text, Josephus and guys like that wrote about, but they don't know him as he truly is. I heard another preacher say recently, everybody loves Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus until you begin to define who Jesus is. Knowing the good teacher and surrendering to the good teacher are two vastly different things. And we have to come to grips with that. We have to understand that. And that has to also shape how we share Jesus, how we evangelize, how we spread the good news because there should be some desperation behind that so that people do understand that there has to be a relationship with him if there is ever to be an inheriting of eternal life. Everyone must decide how much they want to follow Jesus. And he is an all or nothing person to follow. I only have with me today two pages of notes, and for those of you who know when I preach, normally I'm around 20 pages of notes. So if this goes really fast, 
okay. If it goes really long, okay. But guys, we must understand this is the truth of Christ. That we can run to him like this young man did, but how we walk away after having that encounter, that is the key. That is what matters for all eternity. We look back at verse 17, it says, and as he was setting out on a journey, I'm gonna stop right there. That word journey is the Greek word hodon. And it's not really journey, it's path or road. Jesus is the only person who the, the whole purpose of his being born was so that he could die. And ever since that manger, ever since that first Christmas, ever since Bethlehem, the star, the shepherds, all those things, he has been on this path, this journey. And he is getting ready to set out on it in this moment. He is leaving this area they call Perea and Jerusalem's at the center. And he's been circling it and circling it. And now, and you read later in chapter 10, now he is heading to Jerusalem. Now Jesus is heading knowingly to the cross. And someone comes running to him. And what does he do? Does he say, hey, keep up, keep up. You got to keep up with me. I got places to be. This is important. No. Church, he had to have stopped because the man comes up and he kneels. It's a stationary position. You don't keep, you don't kneel and slide, right? No matter what God is doing, no matter where he's headed, if you are going to run to him in sincerity, he will take time to stop and listen. He's not a God who says, hey, you need to keep up with me. He says, no, I'll come to you. We see that in the prodigal son's par uh, parable. We see that in the fact of the cross itself, that God himself steps out of heaven and comes to earth to die as a sacrifice for our sin. So Jesus is getting ready. He's on his path. He's on his road, on his journey. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We've seen other people do this. The demoniac in Mark 5 runs to Jesus, falls down before him. Jesus, son of God, he acknowledges who he is. We see Jairus, the synagogue, another synagogue ruler, another synagogue teacher, run to Jesus. Right after the demoniac scene, he runs to Jesus. He falls down before him and says, Jesus, my daughter is sick. Can you come heal her? This is not uncommon. People run to Jesus. In Mark 6, a whole crowd, when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole region and began to carry here and there on their mats those who were sick to place, uh, to the place they heard he was so that he might heal, so that he might teach, that he might touch their lives. Again, I tell you, people tend to run to Jesus very easily. But it is how they walk away that makes a difference. They either walk away changed or they walk away disappointed. Notice this man ran. Men of stature in this era do not run. Men of station do not run. You know why? Because they would have to hoist, they wore robes. They'd have to hoist those things up and People would see their bare legs. And if you're a dad, you understand that's kind of a shameful thing, right? If I rolled up my pant legs, you'd be blinded. I've had people walk up to me since becoming a dad and only wearing pants year-round. I've had people walk up to me and say, are you part albino? No, I'm clear. <laughs> it, it's, you, that's why they didn't do it. It was an undignified thing. We see this, in the, again, in the parable of the, the, the prodigal son. 
The father is waiting. Every morning he waits for his son. And he sees his son far off. And what does he do? He runs. And the allegory, the parable, what we're to understand is God is represented in the father. And he's waiting for that moment where we run to him so that he can run to us. But how we walk away, that's what, that's what matters. He ran. He knelt. He kneels down. The demoniac, Jairus, the crowds, they do this as well. It's a sign of submission. It's a sign of reverence or it's a sign of shame. It's acknowledging that this person in front of me is a higher power. They are a higher stature. They are of a higher station and I'm beneath them. And he asks a question. And you notice he doesn't ask in the way the Pharisees ask questions. He's not asking to test Jesus. He's not asking with a malicious point behind it. He's not asking because he wants to snare, uh, ensnare Jesus in his own words or anything like that. He's asking because he truly wants answers. He needs to know. Or at least that's what the onlookers are supposed to believe. We have to take a moment and pause and ask ourselves this one question. Is this theater? I love the story of the rich young ruler. And as I was studying it this week, this is the first time I encountered this, this theory that thought that he's just putting on a show. That he's trying to flatter Jesus. I never thought of that before. In fact, he calls him good teacher. You don't do that, by the way, in this era. You don't, nobody would go to a rabbi and call them good. Just didn't do it. In all of history, there's only one extra biblical letter they found, a, a letter to Rabbi, Rabbi Eleazar of Hagrania, and it's found, and it reads like this. It says, good greetings to the good teacher from the good Lord who from his bounty dispenses good to his people. And there are parallels in that alone, that there is God's goodness, God's bounty, God's wealth distributed, God's blessing but you don't normally do that unless you are attempting to flatter the person. And notice what he says, what else he says to Jesus. What shall I do? Good teacher, what shall I do? In other words, he's saying, Jesus, prescribe a work for me that I might do in order to save myself. Give me something to do, Jesus, that I can make myself right before God. You understand we do this too. We conjure this up in our own lives, in our own prayer time and things of that nature. It's legalism of our own design. We try to find favor. We try to earn God's blessing, his grace, his reward, his recognition. If I, if Jesus, if you could just give me a pattern to follow, the right words to say, the right things to do, then I will be right before God and I can be happy. I can be satisfied. Church, following a pattern to get what you want, saying the right words, that's not Christianity. That's witchcraft. That's making a potion or a spell. That is not a prayer. That is not obedience. Again, I would tell you it's, it's the same as witchcraft. People might say, well, we want revival. We want a real revival, and we know what we have to do to get revival. That's not revival. That's a conjuring and we want to have revival so we can say that we did something. True revival comes when we submit to Christ and people are brought into repentance and lives are changed. Not when a great show happens or a good moment or a good experience. That's not revival. I've seen a lot of talk of revivalism but there are very few true revivals where people come and they experience Christ changing them. 
They go and they say, I had a good time. I've actually watched some videos out of Asbury College this past week. I've listened to the sermon that kicked off the entire thing. It was okay. And people are saying, oh, it's so great, it's so good. You can feel the presence of God, but not very rarely. And I have heard some say there's actual people repenting at the altar. There are lives being changed. Praise God for those who are. I'm not, I'll talk more about that as we go. But if we do the revival, it's not a revival that will last. We say, what shall we do? And because we say, what shall we do? We put ourselves in league with the same people who Jesus prophesied about. He said, they'll say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice this man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You do not, and I want to be very clear about this, you do not do anything to earn an inheritance when you have a good father. You don't have to jump through hoop. It's Hollywood and, and crazy barons from the south who make people come jump through hoops to earn their inheritance. It's not Christ. It's not God. In Christ, we are made sons of God, and there we are co-heirs of Christ. There we inherit from the good father. We don't earn it. And all we have to do is believe. All we have to do is have a faith that changes us. All we have to do is repent. That's what really Jesus will get at. John 3, 15 and 16. We always say John 3, 16, but John 3, 15 and 16. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. That's where it resides. Not earning it. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Not do it, but just believe. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you receive that, that's all you have to do. There's no extra works. There's no grocery list. Those who possess eternal life, what they understand when they have come to Christ, when they have truly repented, when they have truly begun that journey with Christ, they understand they have passed out of death and into life. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. 1 John 3, 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The one who does not love abides in death. Those who truly want to inherit eternal life, these are the things Scripture tells us, that they've died to sin, they're alive in Christ. Romans 6, 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We make the same mistake as the ruler. We think there's other things we have to do. Other gifts we have to give. Other tasks we have to perform. That's how we think we'll unlock the joy of Christ. Many of you have heard me say this over the past few years. The joy of being a Christian is not when I die, I get to go to heaven. The joy of the Christian is that when I have decided to forsake all things and follow Christ, heaven has entered into me. Christ has entered into me. The Spirit of Christ dwells in me. And from now forward for all eternity, I get to be in the presence of Christ. But how much do we want him now? Verse 18 says, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good? The Greek word is agathon. And it means not good. It means morally excellent, morally perfect. See, we use the word good. We'll talk about people we know will say, you know, Jimbo was a good guy. I liked old Jimbo. He was nice, right? And I don't know anybody named Jimbo. I'm making this guy up, right? But when we talk about people and we say they're good, what we typically mean is they're reliable, they're kind, they're giving, they're loving, they're a joy to be around. They were there for us when we needed them. 
We do not mean they're morally excellent. We do not mean they're morally pure. Only God is good in that sense. And so what Jesus is saying to him is one of two things, or perhaps both. Are you trying to flatter me by calling me good? Or do you really know what you're saying when you call me good? No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. And when you really read that and understand what he's saying, he's actually quoting a part of scripture that's called the Shema. And it says, no one is good except God is one. That's what he's really saying there, or God who is one. It's quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And in there is the answer for the rich young ruler. But that's not enough. That's not enough for him. All you have to do is love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, your might. What we're really seeing in Jesus' answer is the Trinity on display. You see me, you call me good. If you really mean that, then you're recognizing that Jesus is the Son of God. You're aff- Jesus isn't denying his deity here. He's affirming it. He's saying, yes, okay, do you, do you recognize what you're saying? Because you're saying I'm the Son of God. And he doesn't scold him and say, I'm not good. He doesn't stop and say, you've, you've got the wrong guy. He says, no one's good but God alone. So either Jesus is God or he's a fraud. Either this young man is recognizing Jesus as God or he's trying to flatter and defraud Jesus. And if it follows, it follows if Jesus is God, then whatever he's going to tell this young man, that has to be the truth. For God cannot deny himself. And whatever answer Jesus gives to the young man, whether he likes it or not, he should follow what he's told because then it would be the voice of God. What we're really seeing happen in this moment is a ruler of the synagogue kneeling before the ruler of the universe. And like so many of us, he asks the same question, what must I do? to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? In verse 19, Jesus goes on, he says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And it always fascinates me when I read this. Why does Jesus pick these? Why does he pick, he doesn't even say them in order. Does Jesus not know the Old Testament? Has he not read Exodus 20? Did he not go to Sunday school and have uh, Miss Myra make him memorize them like I did? No, Jesus does this with a purpose. He knows he's not even referring to the entire Levitical law. He's not referring to the Mosaic law. He doesn't bring up all the sacrifices. The Ten Commandments, the core ones, if you can't follow those, it's not going to work. And he brings up the first one as the sixth one. The first one Jesus mentions is do not murder. That's premeditated killing. That's, that's intentionally ending the life of someone. The seventh one, do not commit adultery. That's intercourse with anyone who is not your spouse in marriage. The eighth one he mentions, do not steal. And this is interesting because that's the Greek word klepto. It's where we get the word kleptomania. You know, people who just spontaneously, sporadically steal things for no reason. He says, do not bear false witness. That's, that's lying about someone. That's slandering someone. That's purposely putting people down. He says, do not defraud. Now, that's important because that's not one of the Ten Commandments. But he brings it up. Because if this young man is trying to flatter him, don't try and defraud me, could be the message Jesus is saying. 
And it could be related to the 10th commandment, do not covet. Uh, that's apostereo is the Greek word there. And that's depriving someone by deceit. See, klepto, you're just taking something without someone's permission. Uh, apostereo, that's where you're taking it, but you're, you're swindling them out of it. You're cheating them. In a sense, what Jesus might be saying here is if you're trying to play me, just know it didn't work. And then he circles back to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. Respect your parents. The apostle Paul tells us that's the first, that's the first commandment with a promise. He leaves out Exodus 1, or sorry, Exodus 20, 1 through 8. Have no other gods. Don't make any carved images to worship. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Why does he do that? Because all of those have to do with the relationship with God. This young man doesn't want that. He doesn't want a relationship. He wants legalism. He wants something to do. To truly gain eternal life means willing to lose it all for Christ. He doesn't want that. He wants action. He wants to feel like he's a big part of it. And so we go on to verse 20, and he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Hmm. You notice a word missing there in his dialogue with Jesus? Where'd the word good go? See, Jesus didn't give him the answer he wanted. He's not answering the question that he, the way he wanted the answer. And so good has dropped. And now he's just teacher. It's the Greek word didaskale. He doesn't even call him rabbi. He's an instructor. We've talked about didaskale a, numer, a number of times. He's no longer the good teacher. I had this happen to me one time when we were in Indianapolis as, as youth pastors had this young man, we'll call him Dylan. You'll never meet him. That wasn't really his name, but Dylan was a good kid. And he lived in a rough part of town. And he loved Pastor Jeff as long as Pastor Jeff would unlock the gym for him at the church. Then he'd come and he'd play basketball. I'd shoot free throws with him or play horse because I don't know if you can tell, but I'm not the basketball type of guy. But I'd play with, with Dylan a little bit. Then I met Dylan's mom. Dylan's mom was very excited for Pastor Jeff. In fact, this is what she said, and Jennifer can confirm this because she was there for the whole awkwardness of it. She comes up, all tears. It was the, hot, the heat of summer. Sweaty hug. I love sweaty hugs. Not really. But she gave me a big, sweaty, teary hug. Oh, Pastor Jeff, you're my angel. What? Do I look like an angel? See, maybe the way Ezekiel describes them, right? no. You're my angel. You're going to save my boy. No, hold on a second, lady. <laughs> no, I, I can't save him. Only Christ can save him. I, I, I'm, my whole job is to take him to Christ, to give him, to be used by the Holy Spirit, to, to get him into a right relationship with Jesus. I can't save him. Oh, but you're my angel. Okay. A <laughs> couple months go by and Dylan stops coming. For a while. And now when I call and I talk to his mom, it's Pastor Jeff. I'm not an angel anymore. It's Pastor Jeff because Dylan didn't want to come and play basketball. He got running with some friends and, and he, had, he didn't have time for me. But Pastor Jeff, really love that you call him. Really love that you're reaching out to him. Well, <clears throat> we merged churches. We lost the church with the gym and, and Dylan ended up just kind of dropping out of youth group altogether. But guess what? I became a probation officer after I left that job and Dylan ended up on probation. I wasn't Pastor Jeff that day knocking on his door. <clears throat> hey, Jeff. Wait, I thought I was angel. What happened here, right? That's what happens. That's what we do. We like, we love Jesus as long as we get to define who he is. Then he's the good teacher. Then he's the savior. Then he's this and then he's that. But then he says this one word and we cringe and we say, ah, ah, I don't know if he's still Jesus or not. And that one word is repent. That's the message he's driving home to this young man. 
Now we listen to him talk. We listen to the young man talk. Jesus, I've, I've kept all the commandments since I was a kid. Since I was wearing diapers, I've followed the Ten Commandments. I've been so good. And if you read this and you hear this in this young man's voice, it's almost like he's saying to Jesus, you'd be lucky to have me. I know the crowd you run with, Jesus. I know what, what Matthew did before he got to be your disciple. I see Judas with his hand in the money bag. But guess what? I, I got some money I can put in that and make up for him what he's stealing. By the way, read the Gospel of John. Judas did that. He liked to steal from their money bag. Not a very good guy, that Judas. It's almost like history remembers him as a not very good guy. But we'll get to that in the series eventually. We seem so good when we compare ourselves to the works of others. I'm not like so-and-so. They're a sinner. I did this. I did that. Look at how good, how righteous I am, Jesus. And we do it. We do it too, don't we? We pull out our Christian resume. I don't miss church on Sundays. I'm there for every Bible study. I make it to prayer meeting. I sat through Pastor Jeff's really boring sermon last week, and I didn't fall asleep like so-and-so. I'm holy. I'm good. Our good works mean very little in the light of Christ. Isaiah says, yet all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment and all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind carry us away. There is no one who calls on your name who awakens himself to, hold, to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have melted us into the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Yahweh, you are our father, we are the clay, you are our potter and all of us are the work of your hand. In other words, we puff ourselves up. We try to tell ourselves how righteous we are, how good we are, just like the rich young ruler. But in the light of Christ, we are so very small. We like to do this. We, I, I was saved when I was four. I was baptized when I was five. Filled with the Holy Spirit at 14. Jesus, don't you know how good I am? How awesome I am? Did mission trips in high school? In the light of Christ, who am I? Scripture tells us if he really wanted to, he could raise up new children for Abraham. He could cause even the rocks to cry out in worship. And we have to have the attitude of the Apostle Paul who said, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted a loss for the sake of Christ. It's not that we don't do go those good works. It's not that we don't go to church. It's not that we don't stay awake through the boring sermons please. <laughs> but it's that we should want to. Because he's our Savior. It's a daily commitment. Paul says, I die every day. And Jesus' response to this man, he will have to decide how much he wants to follow Jesus. Verse 21 reads, And looking at him, Jesus loved him. And said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. When Jesus looks at this young man, it's the same way he looks at you and me. He loves us. It's the same word, agape, that is mentioned in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. You know, God even loves those who have made themselves his enemies. God loves those who hate him. God loves those who rebel against him. He says in Matthew 5.44, But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And Christ himself models this for us. He loves the one who drove the, the nail through his hands and feet. He loves the soldiers who put the crown of thorns upon his head. Those Pharisees who mocked him and said he saved others. Why can't he save himself? He loved them and died for them all the same. He loves them and he offers salvation to them but he does not save them because to be saved everyone must decide how much they want to follow Jesus what must I do to be saved well eventually the reply will be the same as, as that of the apostle Paul and Silas 
to the Philippian jailer. They'll say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. But Jesus does not say that to this young man. No. What Jesus is saying here is something deeper. One thing you lack, one thing you're missing. Go, sell all you possess, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And the word that's not even spoken but is implied is repent. He's not saying you have to become a philanthropist and give everything to the poor in order to be saved. He's not saying that you have to live in poverty to be saved. That's not a requirement for salvation. Poverty, by the way, can be just as an enslavement, a sinful enslavement as being wealthy. It doesn't deliver you from the love of money. George MacDonald once said, it's not the rich man only who is under the dominion of things. They too are slaves who having no money are unhappy for the lack of it. What Jesus is doing in this moment very clearly is exposing once and for all the core issue of this man's life is a lack of repentance. He's not willing to change who he is. He's not willing to submit to Christ. He's not willing to let his change of mind, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. It's a change of mind that changes everything else from the inside out. The Hebrew word is shuv, and it's a turning from the way you're going and following God. And that's what he's saying. Come follow me. Give up your way of life. Give up what you've got. Let those things that you think you own but actually own you, let them go and come follow me. Jesus does not say only belief. Only believe, because belief was never this man's problem. Repentance was. He said sell all. He is an all or nothing person to follow. This man had stored up treasures on earth. This is exactly what Jesus spoke against when he said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. We must choose all of Jesus or not at all. It is all of him or Jesus not at all. You cannot follow Christ dragging the treasures of this world behind you. It weighs you, too, it weighs you down too much for you to go where he will call you to go. I'll say it again. You cannot follow Jesus dragging your treasures of this world behind you. It weighs you down too much to go where he will call you to go. The Christian is told to lay down their treasures and take up their cross. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The Christian who is truly saved lives more than just a life of faith, but a life of willing sacrifice. We must be willing to let go of this world if we are to truly embrace Jesus. You ever try to hug someone? when you're holding bags of groceries? Try it next time you come home from Teal's. Doesn't work. Really makes for an awkward hug. It's not a good hug. You cannot embrace Jesus while holding on to the things of this world. Verse 22, the last verse. But at these words he was saddened and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And here we see, you know why Jesus didn't mention the first four commandments? Have no other gods, no other graven images to worship, because this man couldn't keep the first two. He called him good teacher. He spoke in vain. And while he might have kept the Sabbath, he didn't surrender to the Lord of the Sabbath. And we truly see why Jesus didn't mention those. And the man's countenance falls. Notice the progression of him. It's run, kneel, ask, good teacher, teacher, sad, disappointed. What a roller coaster of a day. He had faith to run. 
He had faith to kneel. He had faith to ask the greatest teacher who ever walked the earth, but not faith to abandon his things. No, not, not the faith to leave this world behind and follow Jesus. Martin Luther once said, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. J.C. Ryle, building upon that, he says, a cheap Christianity without a cross will prove in the end a useless Christianity without a crown. And the question becomes, who owns you? What owns you? Where are your treasures? Therefore, where is your heart? We do not earn our salvation. It is a free gift, but it is the, is the, the gift that's worth exchanging all other things for. Is it worth selling all things to gain it? Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, and it was worth selling all you own to buy that field. It's like a pearl of great value, and you sell all you have in order to buy that. It's not that we have to sell everything, but that it's worth selling everything. To the point the things we have are worth giving up. Costs us nothing to receive him, but it will cost us everything if we're to live it. And Jesus is a model of this for us. And that's why Revelation calls him our true and faithful witness. And by the way, the Greek word of witness is martis. It's where we get the word martyr. He's our true and faithful martyr. He loved us to the point he gave up everything and died on a cross for our sins. Do we love him enough we could forsake everything and live for him? The apostles model this for us in their constant beatings and martyrdom. Fox's Book of Martyrs, every page, tells the testimony of someone who did not count this life worth living for but gave it up in order to live for the next. Jesus said, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And he compares the weight of that decision, and it's a weight that many people have never considered, even those who for years believe themselves to be faithful Christians. Maybe they have not even counted the cost of someone who has poured the foundation for a tower. This is Jesus' analogy, not mine. They've poured the foundation for a tower, and they look at their money, and they don't have any, anything left to build the rest of the tower. And Jesus says they'll become a mockery. They're unable to finish. And he concludes by saying, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Have we counted the cost of following Christ? Because what we give up is nothing compared to what we gain in him if we submit to Christ as our Lord. You know, I've never met somebody in my entire life, I've never met someone who said they regretted living for Jesus Christ. I've met plenty of people who said, I wish I spent more time living for him. I wish I'd spent less time at the office, more time with my family, less time at work, more time enjoying what God had blessed me with. Everyone must decide how much they want to follow Jesus. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come back up. We're gonna close in just a moment. I said at the beginning of this message, many of us are, are like the young man. We're saying, what? can I do? What must I do? And the response is the same. Repent and believe. Repentance means turning. It's changing the direction of your life. I already mentioned the New Testament, Old Testament words. The message of Jesus was simply this, repent. The message of John the Baptist was repent. The message of the apostles was repent. On the day of Pentecost, the crowd asked Peter, they said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter responded, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If repentance means changing of the magnitude of which I'm speaking, what is holding control over your life that impedes your repentance? What needs to be let go? What idols need to be cast down? What things are we clinging to? You know, four years ago when I came to be the pastor here, I've mentioned this before, but many of us sat down in my office and we talked about the future of Faith Assembly and the past and things like that. And one of the things I asked almost every member of the church was what sacred cows are there in the church? 
What are the things we shouldn't mess with right away? Oh, no, we're ready for change. We're ready. We don't have any sacred cows at Faith Assembly. And then the renovation started, and boy, did we find out we had some sacred cows. It's the same way in your life when we say, Holy Spirit, I don't think I do have anything else over me. Holy Spirit, I don't think there is anything else that holds sway over me. I don't have any other thing that I'm clinging to, Jesus. I just want you. And then when we actually pray, Holy Spirit, speak to my heart. And the word of God begins to touch our heart. And we see, oh, but you know what, Lord, you are Lord of all, but let's not touch that. Today, church, I would challenge you as we worship, ask the Holy Spirit what, what sacred cow needs toppled over today. Changes begin to happen and it's not easy. No one ever said it's easy. I looked at this Asbury College revival, Facebook's blowing up all about it. And you know what? If it's truly from God, awesome. Praise God. That's amazing. I pray lives are changed. I listened to the, the message by Zach, uh, I think his name's Mercreeks, Mercreebs. can't read my own handwriting. He's a coach at their college, and he preached this simple message, what do you love? Who do you love? And they've been having a revival service ever since. It's not like it was a powerful sermon. It was good. It was okay wasn't a lot of shouting or anything like that, but people began to realize, I don't love Jesus the way I ought to. And you know what, church, I'm going to let you in on a little secret, because whether that's a significant or true revival or not, he's still the same God here. He can still touch your heart here today, as he's touched the students all week long there. So today, I would ask you as we Sing, pray, Holy Spirit, what's, what's my sacred cow? What's something I'm clinging to? What am I saying, Lord, I know I need to let go of this, but not today, please. Let go of it. Cast it down. I'm going to ask you all to stand. We're going to close as we sing. Again, pray the Holy Spirit searches our hearts and touches our hearts. What idol are we clinging to today?